For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. As the book of Nehemiah comes to a close, the Jewish people are overwhelmed with God's goodness in helping them restore Jerusalem. Now it's time for a celebration. Let's join Pastor Ross now with a message entitled, A Time for Joy. Nehemiah, what was that book about again? Uh, It has been almost two months or a month and a half at least. You know, I was joking in the office today about that, and somebody said, I think it has something to do with a wall, you know, so of course that's the major theme. Now, since we are in chapter 11, and as I said, there's only 13 chapters, then you know that the wall, of course, uh, is already up and running, as it were, because it's completed and doing its job. Um, Here in chapter 11... We are at the end of the book, and so uh, the work has been completed. After 150 years of uh, Jerusalem just lying as a disgraced pile of rubble at the hands of the Babylonians some a century and a half uh, prior to that, but God kept his promise, didn't he? He told them, he promised that if you uh, disobeyed and rebelled, that he would remove them from the land. But he also said, if you turn your hearts back after 70 years, I will bring you back. Because he uh, foresaw their turning and their repentance. And of course, his kindness uh, led them to that. So chapters 1 through 7 is this miraculous call on Nehemiah's life. He was uh, serving in the king's palace uh, in Persia you know, which is uh, modern-day Iran. And so he makes the trek all the way back, uh, uh, chapters 1 through 7. Uh, miraculously, the people are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they do the work of repairing uh, the wall 52 days. I have a, just a picture of the wall that many of us, 30 so far, are signed up to go see uh, May 10th through May 20th. There's still room. You can, you can come the day before if you can get on the flight. Uh, so there's uh, no uh, restrictions in that regard. But the wall was um, down. Um, there were spots, lots of spots that still remained, so they didn't have to reinvent the wheel or the wall in this case, uh, but they had to repair it and hang the gates and all of that. And so one through seven took care of that. In 52 days, uh, the surrounding nations realized, wow, that's a miracle. And they looked to Yahweh as a result. And chapters eight through 13, now we're right at 11, uh, really talk about how the nation renews itself. They've been gone for hard 70 years and then trickling back in for the remaining uh, years to about 150. Um, But they hadn't really come back together because the wall wasn't up, the temple wasn't repaired, uh, the homes were destroyed, but now all of that is changing. And so they are renewing their hearts uh, to the Lord. And that's the last half of the book. We're, We're almost there at chapter 11. So last time for context, chapter 10, we were invited to a renewal of, thank you for the picture of the wall. We were invited um, to a renewal of vows of sorts in chapter 10. Um, 
They were so overwhelmed at the goodness of God in their lives, they just wanted to rededicate their love and devotion to God. And isn't that the way it is? When you get a sense that God's been good to you, you want to just stop playing games and you want to renew and get right and be genuine, no more a mediocrity or hypocrisy. You want to walk with the true and living God. And so that's what was on their hearts and their vows, as you remember in chapter 10, were on three levels, which they always should involve in even our lives today. They made personal vows about their, uh, who they were going to marry. They were going to stay in the faith, like God said to do. Keep it in the faith. And uh, they made uh, business vows, how they would conduct their uh, business affairs. Uh, they wouldn't cut corners or compromise uh, for personal gain. And then they made vows, um, the obligation to ministry, and there was a fat portion about how they would bring tithes and support the ministry and the ministers of God's work. And so because of God's goodness, they were motivated to serve God and make uh, good their vows uh, to uh, renew their love and service unto him. Now, the beautiful takeaway so far for the book of Nehemiah has been, really, we wander. We're the work of God. Uh, we go through series. I'm, I'm in my fourth decade of serving the Lord, and now in my mid fifties, and uh, I've seen I've seen some life, and uh, it hasn't always been pleasant. Uh, things have not always turned out the way that we were hoping. We've had some disappointments in life, and we've had some heartache, um, and you fall apart, and we've made some mistakes. I personally have made mistakes, but God is. The takeaway from Nehemiah is that God is in the business of restoring. He is for us. He, he is not happy when he chastises us. It's a redemptive punishment, as it were. It's not even punishment. It's the right word. It's a correction in love so that we would be blessed. Uh, but the, the message that we're getting from Nehemiah is God is... God is so willing and eager to restore and to make up for lost time and to say, I'm for you. Let's just pick you up, dust you off. Let's put you back on the road and put his arms around you and make it good. And uh, today I was just moved by the goodness of God and how he just is so patient and long-suffering, and he's always looking for good, 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 good. And we're always thinking he's up to something, you know, punitive with us. You know, he's always being critical and, and wanting us to do better, do better, do better. And he's driving us and driving us, and that's just not him. He leads us in love, and when we fall apart, like the wall fell apart, he just can't wait to start... Let's build this thing back and just make it beautiful and glorify him in the process. Chris Tomlin's song came to mind today. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. So what's left here in chapter 11? Well, we're going we're gonna to see tonight. Uh, well, if you have a remodeled city and the wall is completed and you have newly constructed homes in Jerusalem, you do have to go into this chapter knowing a couple things. Well, one, for sure, uh, it was a total ghost town for 100 years. Uh, there were tumbleweeds, you know, and jackals and desert owls and ugly scavenger type birds, you know. Nobody lived there. 
And so they came in and they built this wall around houses that were destroyed and they fixed the houses, they fixed the wall, they, they repaired the temple, right? And now what's missing? People. <laughs> There's no people there. And so they have to repopulate the city. A lot of people don't realize what they built around now is, is, is like a... Um, you know, a gated community that just got built, and, but nobody's in there. There's some model homes, you know, but nobody's in there. And so uh, tonight we're going to find out how that gets repopulated. Uh, verse 1 through 4 of chapter 11. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. The leaders first from the uh, suburbs. The leaders come in. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every 10 of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. These are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. Now some Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants lived in the towns of Judah, each on their own property in the various towns. But they were scattered during the suburbs, right? For uh, Verse 4, while other people from both Judah and Benjamin lived in Jerusalem, in, in closer to where uh, the temple was, but nobody lived in Jerusalem proper. You see, and so let's pause there. We'll leave the text up there. And if you're taking notes, starting over, starting over. So, so what do we have here? We have instituted a lottery and a draft. The people had just vowed to tithe on all their produce, which was a way to bring uh, income really into the ministry there, the temple, and support those who ministered in the temple. Uh, so they had just pledged to tithe. So Nehemiah comes up with the idea to tithe the people. So one in every 10 families was going to, by lot, was going to uh, volunteer <laughs> to move in to the model homes and to repopulate uh, the promised land, in this case, uh, Jerusalem, the capital city. Now, the, the capital city is Jerusalem. It's called in your text, the holy city. Well, I'll say, I'll say it's holy. You know, God made it Israel's capital back in David's time. And David took it and called it the city of David because he conquered that hill called Mount Zion. The Jebusites had it, the wicked Jebusites. And he conquered that with the power of the Holy Spirit and called it the city of David. And God was good with that, you know, and he still referred to it that way. And so it's holy because God endowed that city with an eternal nature. He promised a dynasty in Jerusalem that would last forever. That is plainly put in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That David and his descendants, and really through Solomon comes Jesus, the God-man, and that he would reign Forever, where? There, in some way. Even heaven is described as a new, new Jerusalem coming down. Why is Jerusalem so holy? It's the place where God the Son will shed his blood. The blood will drip on soil in a place called Jerusalem. The blood of who? God the Son in payment of the sins of the world. Yeah, Jerusalem is a holy city. Nobody wanted to live there yet because they didn't understand 
They didn't understand. You wouldn't have needed a lottery if people knew it's Jerusalem. It's where God is going to not only take away the sins of the world, but he is going to appear a second time and come and touch his feet on the Mount of Olives. That is Jerusalem. And he's going to enter the temple there. Yeah, in Jerusalem. So it's pretty holy. Where, where's, where does he say, now the dwelling of God is with men? Revelation 21, right? Three and four. Where is that? It's Jerusalem. That new kingdom, that kingdom come that you're praying every day, the Lord's Prayer, that kingdom come, he sets it up in the new world that's coming. The capital city is Jerusalem. Now, I know I'm getting a little bit carried away on one little phrase, but, uh, you know, this is like a Bible class. And uh, Jerusalem is important. It's a holy uh, city. And I don't think that uh, they are going to... Uh, need a lottery if they only realize, wow, you got to, you could have lived in Jerusalem, not forced, but actually volunteered. There was a joke, uh, and I'll move on with this, but there's a joke, uh, you know, don't worry if you don't make the May 10th trip to Jerusalem, because if you're born again, you are eventually going uh, to Jerusalem. So, uh, so Nehemiah encourages the leaders to take the first step. The priests and the Levites are scattered throughout the countryside. And he says, you guys first, you're moving in. Because uh, you're going to have to have the leaders first. And the leaders should lead by example. And verse 1 shows that. Do you see in verse 2 that you get to um, uh, see that the volunteers, there were some people who said, hey, yo, I, I'm going in there. I'll volunteer. I'll do the Lord's work. I'll repopulate. I'll carry out his will in the promised land in the capital city. And they blessed them for that. The people commended those who were voluntarily coming in to live. You see that there. Um, and the lottery was for the rest who wanted to go because of duty, and they did. Now, if you go, if you do something good because it's your duty to do it, it's still good that you did it, Right? It doesn't mean, even though you didn't really feel like taking the garbage out, but you know, you know, it smells in here, and I think my wife will be happy. Uh, you know, as somebody could say, you're only taking it out because you have to. You know, so, yeah, all right. It's okay to do your Christian life as a duty, but wow, it's so cool to volunteer to be the kind of person that doesn't need to be drafted. So I just wrote down in my notes, wow, I didn't see this before, but am I the kind of person God has to say, okay, you know, we have volunteers, but we need more, and we're going to have to draft you. And, and, you know, so I have to be sort of pushed and forced and convinced and con, um, convicted and all of that. Uh, or compared to somebody who says, hey, it's not... A, especially my gift to do so-and-so, but do you need that done, Lord? And, and just a quick little, I don't care, I want to do it, I want to be helpful, I want to volunteer, rather than the guy who's always doing everything by duty, duty, duty. It's nice that you always do the right thing, uh, but I think the guys, that's why they blessed them. It says they commended them, they blessed them. They said, hey, wow, no lottery for you? No, no, we'll go, we'll uproot our lives. We'll change our neighborhoods. We'll go live in a place that we didn't know about. And, and so they do. Okay, so here comes the list in verse 5. It goes on for days for, uh, uh, until verse 24. 
And uh, so here's how we're going to do it, right? Because uh, that's a lot of names, all right? Because they're going to list the families, right? So here's, here's, here's how it plays out for 24 verses, all right? So first of all, you have um, the, the closest areas. They start with the states. I call them states, the 12 tribes. Uh, I think it's easier to understand for most Christians. I'll show you a map. They start with Judah and Benjamin, those who lived near, close to the gated community. So check this out. Jerusalem here, right? The state of Benjamin, it's divided. Israel is 12 states or tribes, all right, named after the progenitors. Jacob had 12 sons. They're the children of Jacob. Jacob got his name changed to Israel. So Israel is technically the children of Israel. Israel's a person, Jacob. And the 12 boys' names are right here. Right? And they formed regions. God gave them regions. And, and I call them states. So what, here's how they're going to do the lottery. They're going to start with those people who live in the state of Benjamin and the, and the state of Judah. right? And so that's what you have there. Let me explain it to you this way. Let's pretend that the capital city uh, was in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C., let's say you want to repopulate this area. You would start with people who live in Maryland and Virginia. Judah, Benjamin, that's all it is. All right, does that help a little bit? Because Washington DC is not a state. It happens to be, low. it's the capital, but it's located sort of in between both of these states because parts of Washington DC is actually in Virginia, not just in Maryland. And so that's the idea. So go back to the list. You'll see the list starts with the states closest to the place, which makes total sense. Right? Instead of saying, hey, you guys from way up north, are you in California? You know, leave your little beautiful beaches and your palm trees and get over here. Uh, it didn't work that way. It was right close by. And so that makes a lot of sense to me. And so back to the list here, you've got the priests 10 through 14 named in the Levites 15 through 18, and then the temple uh, staff. Now, why are they named? <laughs> Nehemiah names a lot of people. I mean, we've been doing this. Chapter 3 lists most of the people who worked on the wall and what they did by name. Names that are pretty difficult to pronounce, you know? Uh, chapter 7, there's a list of people who helped Ezra uh, build the temple. In chapter 8, there's a list of the leaders who led the Bible conference. Why is God so determined to write these people's names down in God's holy, eternal word? Number one, they're appreciated. It's not that we count people, count the people, it's that people count. That's a line from Warren Wiersbe. God, who sees in secret, he knows what you're doing. He knows what his children do. He writes things down. He keeps records, and he's going to re reward us. What an honor to say these are the folks that uh, picked up, uprooted their lives, and went into a place where you know not a lot of people wanted to go because they had to be forced to go. Well, the priests and the Levites and the temple staff weren't forced you see? And so there's honor. Jesus said, those who, those who serve me, my father will honor. 
And so they're just being honored and thanked and appreciated because God cares. You know, you may be a number to somebody, you know, you do something at work, and you're just a number and you're just there to get the job done, but not so in the Bible. And from God's point of view, you matter. He, he knows your name. He cares about you. He knows the number of hairs on your head. And, and, and you know what? I, I'm telling you what. Why did Jesus tell us that? Why did Jesus say he knows the number of hairs on your head? He's trying to make the point. God's so crazy uh, in love with you and obsessed about you that he knows things that just don't even matter about you. He, he knows down to how many hairs are on your head. Whoops, that number just changed. In my case, <laughs> it's changing all the time, right? But God's keeping record of a hair loss, one or two. He knows the number. It's just gone from 163,421, and he's got the number in his head. And Jesus is saying, can you think of a God who could love you like that? And if he cares about the dumb stuff that just doesn't equate to anything, how much more the things that are weighing down your heart tonight? If he's obsessed about the hair follicles, what about what's going through your mind and giving you a hard time? I think he's probably concerned about it. And so he writes the names down. I want you to know every last one of them, even though the preachers are going to skip over them because they're too hard to say and they're too tedious. Uh, but I want you to know there they are and they're in uh, the list. And so that's just beautiful thing. Uh, for us to remember, we matter. We count to God, and just the larger the church gets, it doesn't just it just doesn't matter to God. He knows who you are. Uh, there are two more uh, lists. I mean, the whole chapter's list. And so here's what goes on in 25 to 30. The villages are established in Judah, and they're named all the little tiny towns that get established uh, and all the little villages that get reestablished in Benjamin. And so really, he's just saying, here was the wrecked area and we went in and here are all the, 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 the villages that got reestablished. And now what's the significance of that? Plenty. Number one, it's the promised land. You know, it's not Akron, Ohio. You know, we, we don't need to know every little thing that's going on. No offense. If somebody's from Akron, Ohio. I know it. I'm going to find out tomorrow through email. You know, we don't need to know every little thing that's happened in Kalamazoo. But we do need to know. I get little push notifications from the Jerusalem Post. You know, I need to, to uh, Zach, you need to help me stop that. Because it goes all through the night. It's bloop, 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 bloop. You know, and so... Barb says, who's texting you? And I go, no, it's just my people. And I, and I, and I, and, and I look over, and it's a Jerusalem Post thing because the time is different, you know? And so I got to shut that off, and I know there's a way. Uh, but I do kind of like getting to know what's going on there because it matters because it's the promised land. So all of these villages matter because why? Because you're going to read that the Son of God walked through one of them and raised somebody from the dead. Number one. That's why it's listed. Number two, it's to give credibility to the message. God intervened in history, a real world, a real planet with verifiable facts. You can go and verify these places. And so there's just a multitude there in the chapter listed. 
village after village after village after village. And you can go and see them in May with us. All of them. You can find them all. Not true all the time. Not true with um, the Book of Mormon has about 120 uh, names of cities and people that they can't verify. And so I went, on, uh, I went online. I saw the list of all the names of the places. It starts alphabetical order. There's about 130. There's Ablom and Agosh, Plains, and, and, and Ani, Anti, and Bountiful, and um, some name I can't pronounce, and Gid, and, and Hagoth, and it goes dot, 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 and it says location, and it says unknown, 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 130 times, unknown, unknown. Let me tell you, friend, the Bible is filled with thousands of names, dates, rulers, world rulers, wars, famines, natural disasters, all kinds of verifiable things that you can say, was there a Pontius Pilate? Was it this date? Was it that? Why? Because if the place is real and verifiable and the people are real, the list of the people's names, well, then the message is real as well. And that's the reason why you have all these people's names and dates and phone numbers. (laughs) You can give them a call. Let's find out. Shim Hill. Whatever. (laughs) There's a reason it's unknown. It isn't there. Marianne. I would never put it like that. Well, maybe I would. All right. But now that Marianne has done it, I don't need to. Chapter 12 starts out with another list. And here's here's who we're just going to just take care of the list like we're doing. Don't panic. These were the priests and the Levites who returned with Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and with Joshua. Not the Joshua you know and love because uh, uh, centuries have passed since uh, dear Joshua led them into the promised land. All right, so, yeah. And so, 26 verses of names now in genealogies. And if you've got your Bible, ooh, it's a long one, okay? So, not only are there names of those priests and Levites, they're genealogical records. So, they start doing the bagats in there. And why? And I'm going to sum up 26 verses in, in, in the fastest way ever with a couple sentences. I'll tell you why. These are the guys who came years before. These are the genealogical records of the priests and the Levites. Why? Because you had to be qualified to serve as a minister in the temple, right? You had to, the the right and authority to be in that temple as a priest or a Levite was passed down from your father. And your text there in this chapter says they kept records in Persia. So when they got exiled, they kept records. And it says, here are the records. Here they all are. Because that's important. Why? Because when the people go in, those, pe- those priests and Levites are legit. 
They're legit. They're just not anybody who can stand up and say, hey, I'm called to lead. You know, Old Testament or New Testament. And so the fact that God takes the time to show the genealogical records of the priests and the Levites. The priests descended from Aaron and were like the pastors, like the senior pastors, right? The Levites descended from Levi. They were some from the same family, but they were not, they could not be the senior pastors. They were like the deacon helpers and the worship leaders. Uh, they could not go into the holy place, is what I'm trying to say. So, New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, 17 qualifications. It's not just that the, the Old Testament priests had to qualify. Anybody who is going to stand in a pulpit and open a Bible and speak in God's name and teach his word have to qualify by evidence of callings and giftings and character. And, and 1 Timothy lays out the policy book and gives 17 evidences of calling and character and conduct that 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 man has to you have to i mean it's it's just not a legalistic perfection thing but it's a guideline to say is this man called or not does he qualify by god's standards and that's why you have the list there uh, as you do there in now chapter uh, 12 and so (laughs) What a disaster. What a disaster when they're not in the line and they call themselves. And you see it in the Old Testament. They're called false teachers and false prophets. And you see it in the New Testament, in the New Testament, and you see it in the church today. Guys, for whatever fancy, uh, fleeting uh, desire or motivation, whatever it is, today you can make a lot of money if you get on the right TV station, you can make a lot of quick money. And they have. But they haven't been called to God. They're not in the list. They don't have the authority. You see? They're not genuine. And so the purpose of the list is to say that God has an order. God has qualifications. He's callings. He's giftings. And we need to be careful to vet and to test and to qualify uh, candidates who feel a prompting uh, to be in ministry. And part of the reason is because of these kinds of texts that show uh, that God has a plan for leading his people. Now, uh, picking up at verse 27 of chapter 12, we're going to start to read text. Can you imagine? All right, so this is where the text starts, and now we are going to dedicate the wall. All right, so we're done with the list for the most part. (laughs) Uh, But here we go. Time to dedicate the wall and have a party. So at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out. They're the helpers, right? The priestly helpers. They're sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. Uh, the, The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophathites, uh, from Beth Gilgal, and from the area of Giba and Asmaveth, uh, for the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. That's really cool. When the priests and the Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people 
the gates and the wall. A couple of things that I want to point out here uh, as the celebration begins now. Um, before the food comes out, because you know every celebration in a Jewish holiday has the mantra. I've said it before to you. You can say it with me. You know, they, they try to kill us. We survived. Let's eat. So that's the Jewish way of doing things. And uh, unfortunately, uh, they're going to have to say that again because we're not done trying to kill them on the planet. And so uh, the time of Jacob's trouble... Jacob's another word for Israel. The, the great tribulation is called the time of Israel's trouble because it's, the last days are all about Israel and her survival, right? We're gone with the Lord, but yeah. And so the celebration begins. The Levites lead the worship. Their job was to teach the word of God and to sing and to lead uh, the people in worship. And the point in this passage is, first of all, they're just overwhelmed with joy. God has been so good to them, and they want to celebrate and dedicate the wall now. The houses are up, the temple's up and running, the wall's completed, and now people are living there. And they're like, wow, the gates are opening, and we have residents, we're in the promised land, people. And no one could deny, not even their enemies, that they have the help of God. And so uh, there's a lot of joy. Well, one writer said, there's nothing like the joy when the human heart knows God is for you and working on your behalf. There is nothing like that joy. There's nothing like that joy. Somebody came up to me and said, I just came to church tonight just to show you this letter. This letter allows, solves a legal problem that I've had. Everybody who knows about me getting this letter approved, said it's impossible. It's impossible for you to have gotten that letter approved without A, B, and C. She didn't have A, B, and C. But she got the letter in the mail, and she's so excited. Why? She, and she kept saying, God is for me. God is helping me. And everybody who she says, it's the Lord, they say it must be because there's no other way that you could have gotten that approval. Now, when our human hearts really, really down deep, we know it here, but it's a struggle for a lot of us, myself included. We're so aware of our, our, our shortcomings that when your human heart, when your soul down deep knows there's nothing God has against you because he paid it all in Christ and that God is just like your number one fan and that he just can't get enough of you. Uh, you know, when you really are convinced that God is like my cheerleader and he's, he's president of my fan club and he just loves me to pieces, loves me to death, enough to lay down his life for me. When you're convinced, convinced of that, there's a joy that prompts you to serve him and love people and be at peace in your own self, you know? That's just a beautiful thing. And so that, that's the joy that they had. And so three musical instruments are named, and since I'm a Bible teacher, I just can't, I can't help myself. They're symbols, and, and they, they kind of, they worked them some, something like this in the early days, and, and so they didn't, they haven't changed much, but symbols, let, let um, you know, what does Psalm 150, verse five say? Praise him upon the loud symbols, the high-sounding 
symbols. Ezra 3, you see symbols. First Chronicles 25, David used them all the time in uh, worship services. So symbols was a big deal. And then next you have harps and lyres. And now everybody uh, says that the, this was basically it. And they had the difference between a harp and a lyre was that one told the truth and one didn't. <laughs> I didn't even have that in my notes, people. <laughs> and it's nighttime. It's almost bedtime. I mean, seriously. The difference between harps and lyres I do have in my notes is really the size and the amount of strings. But you can go on websites if you're really that interested and, and hear all the minute, it's very confusing, but you know this is the generally, what David played, David was good at the harp. By the way, the word harp was kinor, and the word for lyre was uh, nebel, right? And so uh, David played the harp, he was good at that, and he mastered that out with the sheep. And he, he played it in an anointed way to keep the demons away from King Saul who were tormenting that poor lost soul. And so, uh, yeah, the harp was used everywhere. And any time families had celebrations or there was a holy day, um, the, out came the harps. And the, the, those were really basically the only, ten string, the only stringed instruments. And they had a lot of them. By the way, and I do throw this in for free, uh, that the Sea of Galilee is, is also called Lake Kinneret, Kinnor from harp, because it's shaped like a harp. And you can see that from, if you're coming with us, I'm telling you, you need to come with us. You'll stand uh, right where Jesus gave the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. And you can see the whole, it's 13 by 8 miles. And it's like Lake, Lake Tahoe. And it's just in the shape of a heart. And so that's where the connection between Kinneret and um, harp-shaped uh, find their meeting there. And so thank you for that uh, picture. And so, oh, and by the way, you know, we, we all are going to get a harp. Did you realize that you're all going to be able to be inst instantly, your tone deafness is going to be healed. Thank the good Lord. <laughs> and you're going to be able to speak languages. You're going to be able to sing beautifully because you will be doing singing. Revelation chapters 4 and 5 have us singing at the top of our lungs and playing harps. We play harps. We don't sit in clouds and play them, but we will be around a throne and we will be involved in ministry. And I don't think any of you are going to have to take lessons. I really don't. I just think we're going to know how to do that. Now, the Church of Christ, just because just I'm a Bible teacher and just because I like to give you little pieces of information that you can use in life, and the Church of Christ does not uh, use any instruments. Now, has it ever crossed your mind why? Why would you not? And they're evangelical, born-again Christians, but they do not want to play musical instruments in church. Why? Their reason is because they don't see it in the New Testament. And because there's an absence of mentioning symbols and harps and lyres, they just want to play it safe by saying, you know what, we don't see it, so we're not going to use it. They sing a lot in the New Testament, but you don't go, uh, oh, 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 I wish I could have been around when they decided that because I could have argued with them a little bit. Because in Revelation, 
They're passing out the harps in heaven to all of us. So why would there be a problem on earth to have the harps? You know, but nobody called me. And uh, they went on and made a decision. I can't believe it without me. And that's it there. Now, the musical instruments. Thank you for catching that. It was a little late, but you caught it. And you laughed, and I appreciate you. Musical <laughs> instruments accompanied the voices, and they sang the Psalms. The Psalms is a hymn book. They had 150 hymns. Uh, that they sang, they sang them. And David had musicians. And those songs that we, the Psalms, which means songs, are songs that they sung to melodies. You know, some of them say, to the tune of, above. David said, to the tune of that one, right? And so they had different melodies. So we're used to saying, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. But they sang they knew the melody of that, like we know the stand, or we know, you know, before the throne of God above. We know the tune. They know the tunes to 150 of them, and so they sang them. Now, all right, so we, now we got a big chunk. We're almost done. Uh, 31 through 43, they praised God and, and thanked him for his wonderful uh, goodness in this way, a lot of joy. And So let's see what else is going on. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. So they're dedicating the wall. This is a fun part. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right, toward the dung gate. Not so fun there, but verse 32. <laughs> Hushiah and half the leaders of Judah followed them, along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some priests with trumpets, and also Zechariah, son of Jonathan. What a nice name. Thank you, Jesus, for Jonathan. The son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zachar. Zachar? That sounds like I, my nickname for my Zach. Zachar. Uh, the son of Asaph and his associates, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Mai, <laughs> Mai, Nathanel, Judah, and Hanani. I love Hanani. We've met him before. Uh, with musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. Ezra, the teacher of the law, led the procession. At the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall and passed above the site of David's palace to the water gate on the east. Of course, you're, you walk right there. You walk where they did this. That's, that's worth the price right there. Uh, B, please, thank you. Oh, you already changed. Thank you. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. It followed them on top of the wall. I would think I followed them on top of the wall. Okay, I followed them on top of the wall together with the half of the people. All right. Past the tower of, of the ovens to the broad wall over the gate of Ephraim, the, Shan, the Jashana gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred as far as the sheep gate. 
At the gate of the guard, they stopped. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I. So it was I. My bad. Together with the half, together with half the officials, as well as the priests. Here we go. Eliakim, Maasiah, Miniamin. Well, whatever. Micaiah, Eliani, Zechariah, and Hananiah with their trumpets, and the list goes on. Maasiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzi, <laughs> poor, poor kid growing up, <coughs> Jehohanan, Malkajah, Elam, and Ezer. I like that. Ezer. <laughs> the choir sang under the direction of Jezriah. And on the day they offered, and forgive me, all of you who heard that from heaven, you know, you, we can talk later. Verse 43, and on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. So long story short, a good time was had by all at this dedication. Now, look what they did. Look what they did. Nehemiah, I love, I love him. On top of the wall, it's wide and broad. You can walk up there. And so he sent two large choirs, one off counterclockwise and one off clockwise. And it's around. It, I mean, it's not round, round, but they're eventually going to meet up. Verse 40, they meet up where? At the temple. And so what are they doing? They're singing. And there's dancing, of course, and there's music, and there's uh, a sacrifice that they're going to have, which is really uh, the barbecue, the makings of a big barbecue, a communal feast is going to happen. And so there's loud singing and trumpets blasting, and everybody is celebrating uh, because, verse 43, God has given them great joy. Now, I started thinking about this again, the goodness of God. And the joy, the joy of the Lord is supposed to be our strength. And, you know, there's just no place for a miserable Christian life. There's just something wrong because the joy comes from knowing you got God. Your sins are forgiven. He's for you. He's working out everything for your good. And so uh, there's supposed to be this joy uh, because of an experiential knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. Um, and from that, we live our lives. And I have written down here, you know, how about you? I mean, do you, is the joy of the Lord something that's a part of your life? Would you, would you say that you have the joy of the Lord? Um, a joy of the Lord doesn't mean you're always happy. It means down deep, there's just this, it is well with my soul. And, you know, just this lighthearted, optimism and brightness about life and confidence. And it's hard to explain what true joy is because it, you can be uh, going through a struggle and still have it. It's sort of like, you know, the currents in the ocean, they run deep and, and the, current, the storms can be on top and the winds and the waves are blowing, but the current is going the other direction below because it's so deep. It's far below the surface of what's going on. And so I like that as an illustration of the Christian's joy is at a, at a level pretty deep. 
not where the surface chaos is going on, but down deep, your heart and your soul knows it's been bought and paid for by the blood of God. And if God bought and paid and, and owns me twice over, he created me, one, and then he redeemed me and purchased me, so he owns me twice. And then he says, I'm coming back, and, and he put his spirit in me to, to be a guarantee of what's coming. There, there ought to be a little bit more joy, less fear, less anxiety, less miserable, less pessimism, less Eeyore. You know, Eeyore, less, we're all going to die. You know, I have a joke. I always go home and I'll look at Barb and she, she'll look at me and I'll go, we're all going to die. <laughs> you, you know, and we play this little game because it's just so stupid. It's so stupid to despair. You know, the line in Anne of Green Gables where uh, Marilla, I just loved her. Uh, she was, you know, the adopted mom of, of little Anne. And little Anne was saying, I'm in the depths, I'm in the throes of despair. You know, little red-headed kid. You know what I'm talking about? Well, then say something. Just kidding. <laughs> and she says, oh, Marilla, I'm in the depths of despair. And she said, how dare you? She said, you, sh you cannot be in the depths of despair. To despair is to turn your back on God. That woman knew stuff. I mean, I just liked her. <laughs> Uh, she is just a great actress. She, she's gone on. I hope that she was saved. Um, but I really enjoyed her work. Anyway, um, I love that line. Come on. Think about it. Just think about your little puny life. Somehow you caught the attention of God, and for whatever reason, he decided to spare you from you destroying yourself and living eternally in hell and being cast into the lake of fire forever. And somehow, nothing that you did, nothing. He just said, I want that one. I want that one. And he lavished his love on you, and now you're going to reign and rule forever with him. Now that ought to start to stir something up there. I'm happy about it. Let's finish up. We got just this, and we're done. And then we only have one chapter left next week. All right, this is it right here at that time. Now, now there's a shift in like, what? We were just celebrating. They just finished the meal. And now what happens? They start to give tithes. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruits, and tithes. That's all ways that they would give to the Lord. From the fields around the towns, they were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites, for Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. They performed their service of their God and the service of purification, as did also the musicians and the gatekeepers, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, he was like David's choir director, worship leader. Uh, there had been directors for the musicians and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel was a high priest for the temple. And the days of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the, the tithing and the offerings so that the worship leaders and the staff of the church, the staff of the temple, the gatekeepers could do their thing. They also set aside the portion. This, this is tithing and offerings and monies to the other 
ministers and, and the Levites set aside the portion uh, for the descendants of Aaron, so which are the priests. So it ends the chapter by saying, it was joy, it was godly joy, and the fruit of godly joy is a response. It's not self-absorbed. Yay, we're celebrating. It's all about us. We're the chosen people. It's me, me, me. Look at I'm blessed, I'm blessed, I'm blessed. It was a godly joy that touched their hearts, and the fruit of godly joy is giving. Not just money, not just to support God's work to say, hey, God, I am so blessed. I want to see your work thrive. And so let me do my part. I don't come in empty-handed because why? Not out of duty, though duty is fine, and a lot of people just give out of duty, and it's sad because it's not as fun to give out of a fresh realization of what God's done for you. And the way that happens is start your day on your knees with your Bible open. And then you're hearing his voice and you're like, everything's renewed. It's like he died for you just yesterday. It's, it's like, wow. You know, you, you remember all the goodness. I mean, I was shaving. I see, I have a little mark on my chest that's tattooed because it's tattooed because of my radiation for my bone marrow transplant. And they have to be so precise that they tattoo. And so when I shave, I see that. And today I saw that. And I thought, oh, two years of wondering, am I going to die? Is someone else going to raise my kids? I love my wife and pastor people. And God said, gave me 14 years, cancer-free, remission. My oncologist said, stop coming to me. You're cured. Go away. And I was so happy to hear that. <laughs> you know, praise the Lord. But I'm saying, when you live like that, in relationship with God, you're not just serving out of duty. You're not giving because you've got to give 10%. That's what Christians do. All right, and here's my check. You know, uh, God's kind of, he likes cheerful. That, that 10% could be 12 sometimes if you had joy. And maybe in keeping with your income, you can afford a lot more than 10%, right? But, but oh, and I'm not even just talking about giving that way. The text is giving, technically. I'm talking about the way you cut slack to people or your, your husband or wife needs you to overlook a little thing. And because of the joy that you have in that fresh realization, man, I could have died. God's been good to me. I just saw a fresh glimpse of, wow, God, you didn't have to do that. Christians die. I could have died. Only had a 30% chance to live. That's a neat, neat thing to be able to overlook somebody's offense out of joy, not because you know the Bible tells you to, right? So giving and serving and living your Christian life and even reading your Bible and all the disciplines that you have to do, it can be a drag and it can get old if you're not functioning in this kind of joy. So I think the, the point of the text ending with, and by the way, they were so happy, they were tithing and taking care of the ministry and those who ministered there. They were taking care of, because they were happy to do it. That's the text. And the text, the spiritual application for us is connect with the joy, your Christian disciplines, 
and you, oh man, you'll go far beyond uh, what you could imagine otherwise, just doing it out of duty. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord God, for your wonderful evidence and, and goodness in our lives that cause us to have joy, that you could use somebody like us, Lord, that you looked down in heaven and just said you just couldn't imagine heaven without us, and you made sure that we'd find you, and you put us on this path. We couldn't find you without your help. And so, Father, we're grateful. We have joy while we, <laughs> we're going to heaven. And you're going to take care of us. And you're going to walk us through the valley of the shadow of death. And uh, that brings us a lot of joy and relief and comfort. So we, we commit our souls to your care once again in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.